Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Friday, September 8th. It's hot as heck here in Annapolis and the D.C. area, but good to have you on board, everybody. We are very excited to have a new sponsor for the show this week, Textron Systems. Today's show is brought to you by Textron Systems Aerosond Uncrewed Aircraft System, designed for expeditionary land and sea-based operations, building on the system's 600,000 plus flight hours in the field. The hybrid quad variant offers vertical takeoff and landing capability and brings enhanced mission flexibility while maintaining a small footprint. Learn more at textronsystems.com. Okay, our guest today joining us from Newport, Rhode Island is Commander Devere Crooks, U.S. Navy. He's the author of an article in the September issue of Proceedings, which is titled Management Makes Warfighting Possible. And if you have the print magazine, which hopefully got to your, uh, your U.S. mailbox last week, uh, the training and education issue, the article starts on pages 38 and 39. Devere, great to have you on the show. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, before we get started on some questions, I just want to give our listeners uh, some background on uh, your background. Uh, you're a surface warfare officer. You had command uh, as a commander of the USS Halsey DDG-97. Hit hard, hit fast, hit often uh, from 2019 to 2021. Then you went to Newport and you ran the prospective commanding officer course at Surface Warfare Officer School uh, and, uh, in Newport. And so every uh, uh, officer headed to command a, uh, a surface warfare command of a, a surface Navy ship has to go through that school. And, and now you're a student at the Naval War College. And so I'll also point out that you're a member, uh, not just a member, but uh, the vice chair of the Naval Institute editorial board. So you're a big part of our team. Uh, how is it being a student again at, uh, at NWC? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, but it's also my first time being a student in 16 years. So there's a, a certain uh, a certain curve involved in, in getting back into the groove and, uh, you know, being able to read and digest fast enough and, and, and write on demand uh, vice, you know, on the rare occasion I have something useful to say in proceedings. Um, but uh, I'm really enjoying it. It, it, is, it is a real blessing to be able to do this again. Cool. Yeah, I remember uh, when I uh, reported to NDU, as a student at what used to be called the ICAF. Now it's the Eisenhower School. Uh, it was about 15, 12, 15 years ago. I had the same, that same shock, like, this is awesome. But oh my God, there's a lot to read here, you know, and it's a different, you know, it's just different from, uh, uh, you know, the, our jobs when we're either at sea or on shore commands. You know, being a student is a, is a different thing. And if you haven't done it for a while, it can be a, a bit of a shock to the system, a good one, but, but also a bit of a shock. So let's talk about the Absolutely. article a little bit. At the start, you mentioned a 2021 report that came out from Congress that critiqued the warfighting culture of the surface Navy. And you write that critiques such as this one ring somewhat hollow. Describe why. Yeah, um, and I would I would emphasize the initially the somewhat there. Um, they you know there's a lot in that report, and there's some other similar things. I mentioned that the uh, um, series of interviews that an NPS student did, and then and uh, she that was her thesis at NPS, and then she turned it into a, a SimSec article. There's some very valid things in both of those, and, and some things that I hardly agree with and would emphasize. Um, what I'm specifically calling out in this in this article is. The implication that there is somehow this this family or or uh, I think it says dizzying array in the in the uh, Senate report 
of uh, administrative things that we're doing that we don't need to do that are getting in the way of warfighting. Um, and I, I, that, that struck me in, in coming out of command, you know, I, I thought about that a lot and, you know, thought about what, what could I not be doing that I was doing uh, in order to focus more on warfighting. Um, and between that, thinking about that, my own experience, and then getting to spend a great two years uh, facilitating the PCO course, as you mentioned, and, and talking to the, all the folks that have just, in most cases, coming right out of an XO tour, going right into command. Uh, I've really concluded that there, you know, there isn't much that's extra. And the, the bulk of what we're dealing with on the management front is just a result of the complexity of the ships we built and, and the things we're asking them to be ready to do. Um, so that, that was kind of the initial insight, uh, one that caused me to take issue with at least that, that implication in those reports and some critiques like that. Uh, and also, it's, it's a little bit of a call to action to commanding officers that, that hey, you're not, there isn't some magical time coming when we're going to stop worrying about all these other things and just start being, you know, blood and guts warfighters uh, and nothing else. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, foot stomp that a little bit because around the table at the uh, editorial board meetings for the past couple of years now, there have been a number of articles and article submissions, you know, that have come to us that that uh, point to the same thing that you just mentioned. You know, there's this idea, there's a sort of a, a mythology that if we could just focus on warfighting, you'd get rid of some of these administrative tasks. And so you've been a big part of those conversations. And I think, you know, perhaps some of that, you know, was uh, maybe spurred your, your article or, or contributed to the, the impetus behind it, too. But this has been an ongoing thing. And, and, you know, there's just not it's not like there's, you know, hundreds of man hours or man days that you can just say, well, we're not going to do that. It's because it's not important there. You know, there aren't a whole lot of things that can be, you know, sort of trimmed from the to-do list, right? And so that's what your uh, your article gets to. Uh, you also mentioned this point, which I, I I thought about quite a bit as I read this and reread it. You say modern warships are the most complex systems of systems of their size ever built, and those systems demand a lot of management. So discuss that a little bit and and give a couple of examples from your time in command of Halsey. Sure, and and you know when I when I was CEO of Halsey, I, I would you know, proudly and maybe a little glibly go around and, and brag that, that Halsey, you know, is an example of the, you know, the, the most complex, this most complex system of systems of its size. Um, I mean, I would contend that a surface ship has, has more stuff in it than the space shuttle. I think that uh, uh, in some ways, and, and, you know, you certainly have to account for sensitivity of some things, but in some ways we have, we're carrying more complexity than a nuclear submarine. Again, there's some things in the, in the back end and other parts of the nuclear submarine that are very high consequence. So, so it's a little different. Um, but uh, it kind of hit me, and again, when I was in command, that that uh, there are just so many things. Um, to give some examples, you know, the, the basic frame of the hull is probably not much different than a ship, um, you know, say, a, a, maybe not quite as far back as, as World War II warship, but, you know, at least a 70s or 80s, you know, or, or even 60s era, uh, you know, warship. That the whole mechanical electrical basics are largely the same, although some of our newer ships are getting more complex in that respect, and are some, some things are more complex. Uh, but on top of that, we have just piled in an amazing assortment of mission systems. Um, and, and it is, it is you know, very impressive. And it's something I was very proud of. I asked my crew to be very proud of. That it's something that I don't think we in the service community or any other community in the Navy that operates these, these kinds of things really takes enough credit for. Um, but I had, uh, I, I think you can safely say there is that, that a ship like Halsey or any other, any other you know, service combatant is, is able to touch and act in every, every domain and pretty much every mission that the armed forces do. 
Uh, and it's hard to think of something that we can't at least, you know, tangentially support or be involved in. Um, and there's not many, not many things that can you know, units that can say that. Um, I mean, the, the, just the command and control architectures that we can tap into and all the networking systems and things that go with that. Um, you know, the combat, the array of combat systems we have, um, you know, my, uh, on a DDG, you know, stop saying mine because there's 70 of them. Uh, but, but on a, on a DDG, uh, you know, you have your, your strike division and your, your ASW division have most of what amounts to a submarine combat system in them. Obviously, again, just real differences there, but just gives you a sense of the scope uh, that we're also doing air defense. We're also doing surface to surface missions. Uh, we're you know, all kinds of sort of, uh, you call lower end or, or uh, you know, missions other than war, SAR, uh, visit board search and seizure, uh, some missions of state kinds of things. Um, and uh, so you're asking a lot of one system and, and a, building a lot of complexity in that one system. And then the crew that goes with it by nature is kind of a, a team of teams, sort of use a football analogy. You know, you have all these, you have this group of 350 people, each of whom has several different jobs that they're doing at different times and have to maintain readiness for and all that. So add that all together and it works out. There just isn't space in the schedule to do much else. I mean, I don't remember doing a lot that was not, you know, within a, a single degree or two of directly related to the mission. Um, in fact, talking through this with uh, some other some other folks, the only thing I've been able to come up with is the voting assistance officer. Uh, that that function, maybe you can make a case, is not that directly tied. Obviously, important for other reasons, but uh, just about everything else we're doing, you can extrapolate very closely to to the mission or one of the missions at hand. Yeah, I think somebody uh, mentioned to me the the possibility of, you know, the urinalysis program coordinator. Maybe that's something that you push ashore to a shore command rather than having it, you know, uh, on the ship. But there's yeah. a lot, not a lot of different things come to mind. They're like, oh, let's just not do this. Right. That's that's a great point. And, and there's certainly and I sort of allude to this in the article. There are certainly discussions to be had about could some of these things be more efficient? Uh, is it right to drop them on the, you know, Echelon 5 command that, that uh, an 05 uh, ship is? Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion to be had about, about sharing of some of those, those burdens and, again, the efficiency and, and efficacy of some of those programs. Um, but they're all there for a reason. And we just, I think the, the pressure is such that there's just, we don't have time to do anything that's not there for a reason. It's sort of yeah. self-reinforcing. Yeah, and I, you didn't mention it, but I was also thinking while you were talking about the different missions, you know, ballistic missile defense is mm -hmm. uh, yet another one. Um, space uh, at least, uh, you know, sort of awareness of what's happening, you know, in, in outer space, cyber, IW, you know, there's just, it, it, the, the array of missions is much more complex than it was uh, and, and broader uh, than 30, 40 years ago when, when I was at JO. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. All good and I'd say even, even you know, in the, the little over 20 since I was at JO, I think it's, it's gotten markedly and you know noticeably more complex uh and again not not to be plaintive about it something i'm very proud of I, and i think our, our our the folks that crew our ships and manage our ships and oversee our ships should be very very proud of that yeah agreed um so you you write a warship commander must make sure his or her ship is both ready and lethal and talk about the balancing act that that entails yeah and this this was a um again part of the kind of basic insight or basic realization I had. And, and a lot of this, I have to say in general in this article, a lot of what I'm saying here are in some ways things that I wish I had done better in command. One of the, one of the you know, neat things about standing in a, a classroom for two years talking to prospective COs. I mean, I spent more time talking about being a CO than I actually was a CO. Um, so a lot of what's here is things that I, I realized sort of after the fact and maybe looking back and, and talking to myself in the past. Um, but, uh, you know, I, the 
there's two things here. One is, um, you know, there, there is no, again, there is, as I said before, there is no bright shining line between you're going to stop the management and start the war fighting. And I think we've built ourselves sometimes into that expectation that up, you know, when the proverbial balloon goes up, I'm just going to shift over and just worry about war fighting. Hey, all that maintenance is still going to need to be done. Those systems are still going to have the same problems. You're still going to have some of the same training concerns. Maybe I'll shed a few things. So some of it is just this message that, hey, this is, this is here to stay. And so how can we day in and day out uh, you know, thread the lethality into the routine aspects of management. And anybody who served on a ship knows there, there are some very boring days and there's some really grinding routine involved. Um, so a lot of what I tried to get at and what much, you know, I distilled from conversations with my students last couple of years is, so what are some ways given all that, that we can get in there and, and do these things? Um, and it, you know, it, it is, there is something beyond just having all the readiness indicators green, all the systems working right, all the training accomplished, even all the training done well, there's something beyond that that you need to, to go over the horizon and do the violent, unpredictable things that, that uh, warfare is going to call for. So also this is about how can we, how can we do our best to weave that kind of stuff in, that, that sort of unquantifiable human factor? How can we build that in concert with all the less exciting uh, day in and day out parts, or some, some which are pretty exciting, but all, all the other kind of ones and zeros that we're responsible for. Yeah. Uh, so uh, threaded throughout your article is this, uh, this concept of a fundamental purpose. Uh, what is that in your words? And uh, you know, other people might, might say uh, things along the line of, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing, but the fundamental purpose. And, and how do you maintain that focus in the minds of your crew during times when they were, as you just pointed out, you know, doing that everyday maintenance, the admin test, the peacetime sailing, the, the you know, sometimes the, the really boring routine things. How do you keep that fundamental purpose in their, in their minds, in their fore, you know, forethinking? Yeah. And so I, I give some examples, I think, in the, in, in the article of, of some of it. And, and this is one of the virtues of being a commanding officer is that you really have the ability to kind of set the terms of the conversation. In, you know, day in, day out inside the lifelines of the ship. And certainly your, the rest of your leadership team is, plays a key role in that, you know, your, your chief petty officers and your department heads and others. Um, but a lot of it is just tying everything back and the way you talk about things, the way you conceive of things, the way you make decisions, especially visibly make decisions to what is the fundamental purpose? You know, at the end of the day, what is this ship built to do? And, and what are we possibly in, in the next few years going to be called to go out and do? Um, so I, I give some examples in the article of, you know, you're talking to the guy or the gal who's doing the really unpleasant maintenance on the trash pulper. There is a discussion there because again, if everything we're doing is it has some tie to the mission, how can we remind folks of that and keep it in their sort of self-conception, their self-identity um, of, you know, what we do. And this, this is imperfect. It's, you know, it, it is a very grinding uh, task, especially, you know, as we've, as we've seen last few years, you know, life for, in, for ships and deep maintenance is, is very difficult and uh, just keeping, you know, that industrial environment safe and prosperous is hard much less trying to make people remember that what, you know, the warfighters, but even there, you know, uh, as one of my, my colleagues pointed out, um, I think we'll mention his name later. Um, you know, most of our sailors will experience combat in the form of damage control. Um, and you know, the damage control that you have to be ready to execute in the, in the shipyard, as we saw with, you know, with bomber shard or USS Miami or other, other things that happened in that context, the sailors fighting a fire on bomber shard, you know, their experience is probably not much different from the sailors fighting the you know main space fire on USS Stark uh, or in other places. So there are some connections, just given the nature of our business, that you can make between you know the, the things we're trained to do and preparing to you know the, the kinds of eventualities we're ready for just on a given day at sea or even in the shipyard 
uh, those have connections to to what warfighting would be like. Um, and obviously, some other very different things. Um, and of course, every commanding officer, I think, loves the opportunities to to get the war room or the tactical watch standers or some other audience together and, and talk talk tactics, go off to do some simulator training and all that. And of course, that's always indicated. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have time to do that as much as we'd like a lot of times. Yeah, and and to your point about damage control, I'm reminded of some of the maintenance, or sorry, the uh, the management tasks associated with that. Right, it's making sure that all your sailors are signed up to go to firefighting school, and that they go oh, yeah. to firefighting school, and that you document that they've all been to firefighting school. You know, those are the those are the management parts of that warfighting task that you just you can't you can't divorce yourself from. Right, it's uh yeah, the the, the two do go hand in hand. That's a good point. Um, so there's a lot of discussion in the Navy these days, and you mentioned it in your article about managing risk, and, and you advise turning that on its head a bit. And your quote in the article is, stop thinking about managing risk and instead impose risk on the adversary. So I love that phrase. It could be a good uh, bumper sticker for the Naval Institute, or maybe we'll put it on the back of our next T-shirt. But, you know, discuss that for a minute. Well, I, I should say, you know, there's maybe a, a light dose of hyperbole in there because, of course, we can't stop thinking about uh, other kinds of risk. You know, I mean, in, in, well, one of the things I'll, let me back up and say one of the things I, I really learned in, in working through the PCO course, you know, teaching, teaching, uh, really facilitating new CEOs and thinking about my own experience is there actually is a, a wider array of risk management going on in peacetime than I think we, we really ever uh, elicit when we talk about it. Um, you know, we tend to talk about risk management is up. Let's not let's not bang into another ship or have the helicopter bang into the flight deck or somebody fall off or those those you know those kind of very real dangers that are always present. And of course, that's a key part of what we're doing in peacetime. But there are a lot of other things that that CEOs are managing other kinds of risk, and some of those include you know the, the risk of going off on deployment and doing something that that uh, is inadvertently escalatory or embarrassing the United States down to the kind of mundane business risks that we're dealing with. Um, you know, hey, are we counting the bullets and the, the, the other things like we're supposed to, all the maintenance, you know, you're responsible for a lot of different things and every one of those things comes with risk as a CEO. So number one thing is that it is a more sophisticated problem than, than we often talk about. When I say stop thinking about it, I think what I'm, what I'm referring to there is when we're, you know, to the extent that we are able to, to free our minds and really think about, as I, as I talk about in the article, you know, where you can get time and, and circumstance to, to really visualize what combat's going to be like and ideally begin to think creatively about it. Uh, it does require a bit of a mental exercise and a bit of a kind of stepping outside your daily self to say, okay, wait a minute. You know, I, I've spent so much time worrying about bad things happening to me. How do I transition my mindset? And this is when we, when we talk about warfighting culture. I think this is a very key part of it is how, how do I transition my mindset to, to inflict risk and, and ultimately, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, lethal danger or, or lethal effects onto other people. Uh, and that, that's a mental leap that I think we have to recognize is not easily done in peacetime. You can never do it perfectly. And it's, any, any of the mental leaps required to, to really try to, to get your, you know, to experience what combat would be like. Very hard to reproduce in peacetime. So how can we, you know, how can we find ways to talk about that, think about that, and do the best we can? And one of those is we need to, need to reframe our minds and, and think about, um, you know, while maintaining this very complicated thing, I'm also going to have to go out and do things that are very different than anything I've ever done before. Uh, and one of those, you know, that hopefully comes with an ability to, to think in terms of, okay, how can I make this hard on the other guy if I just, you know, preserving myself? Is that, and, I, I'm not sure if that's a clear answer. But. Well, well, I have a, a, no, it is, but I, I have a follow on question, which is, you know, the, the workup cycle, right? Uh, where you, you start with unit level training and you work your way up to a, you know, a group sale, then you work your way up to a, a Comp2X and a JTFX, et cetera. Uh, did you feel as a CO that, 
that baked into that uh, readiness cycle that um, that the training enabled that that mind shift you know mindset shift to happen right did you did you feel like hey there were you know sort of the building block things that we we have to do to get ready for war fighting and that that certain parts of that uh, workup cycle you know automatically sort of put you and your exo and your wardroom in that in that thinking process um and, and i think certain parts is the right term uh or the right right phrasing um it it uh Definitely at times, um, you know, you get to the, the, the sort of right hand end of your, your uh, pre-deployment curriculum with COM2X and some of the more free play things or occasionally on deployment, we'll get to do uh, higher end exercises. Um, and there certainly are moments when you, you get close to that. Um, I would contend, you know, and, and this, is, this is limited by resources and, and probably always will be. But we, of course, could use more of that. that uh, more. As I advocate for in the article, I think CEOs could use more uh, free, not free time, but more time of their own, uh, you know, under their own recognizance to do that kind of training internally. Because what tends to happen in the in the um, uh, training cycle is that you are you're under such schedule pressure because there's also, you know, the, the correlated to the complexity of ships, or I guess the, the related uh, issue is there's also not enough ships. Uh, so you're under this constant pressure to, to get out the door to, to go do the job, you know, do the, whatever the deployment task is. Um, so inevitably, there's never enough time to do it. You know, most things you get to do them once. Uh, if you completely, utterly fail at it, maybe you'll do it a second time. But the way the curriculum's built, you kind of have to spend so much time racing through and knocking out all the basic check boxes to get the basic skill sets built. Get a little bit of uh, free play time here and there, and so you do get to that to, to exercise that mindset a little bit. But it can never be enough, and it certainly is not enough in just the curriculum training we get. And I, I would advocate uh, that. And this is where, uh, you know, the, the chain of command needs to, needs to take notice to CEOs that can control these things. Uh, CEOs need more time to do these things. We need to provide them better tools to measure their own performance. Um, and, uh, you know, just maybe maybe reduce some of the missions that we're, we're trying to certify in. Uh, just a couple of what I would call lower end or, or uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, operations other than war kinds of missions that, that uh, we could probably do without. Um, safely, you know, we to maybe take a little risk there and, and drop some of those. By doing those things, ideally, you give COs and maybe group commanders more space to do the kind of free play training, the exercise that, that that really get your mind into what combat's going to be like and, and the, the different frame of mind you have to be in to, to you know, survive and, and uh, succeed there. Yeah. Did, did you encourage your JOs or department heads to read and discuss you know, any, anything, you know, specific things from from uh, from naval history, you know, going back to, um, you know, specific battles, you know, re thinking through Guadalcanal, thinking through, you know, Leyte Gulf, thinking through some of the specific lessons or, or you know, uh, writings of, of key leaders who went through those um, those types of situations that, as, as you point out, you know, war at sea hasn't happened for the U.S. Navy, uh, you know, since the end of World War Two. So did, were you able to you know, sort of play on any of that historical perspective and bring it forward to to your wardroom or to your you know chief's mess. Not not as much as I should have. Um, I uh, I certainly did at times. We were very very advantaged with Admiral Halsey as a, as a ship namesake. Obviously, you know he's he's a pretty pretty clear example of a lot of those things and, and participant in a lot of those things you mentioned. Uh, so he gave us a great entree to talk about those things sometimes. Um, I, I did, I did, uh, and this is no fault of theirs, uh, I don't think, but I, I did find that it was very hard for many of my JOs or, or young sailors to really relate to Admiral Halsey and, and to, you know, know much about who he was. And so that took a little, yeah, I, when I, when I was slated to the ship, so oh, 
this will be great. This will be easy. Everybody knows Admiral Halsey and knows what he did. Funny culture will be easy on this ship. It's not, you know, your average, your average 22 year old just hasn't spent a lot of time, you know, reading about those things as you say and talking about them. And so I think I wish in command, I'd spent more time doing that. Um, I think certainly in, in the schoolhouses now and, and, you know, in the service community schoolhouses like SWAS, uh, we're getting a lot of great mileage out of reaching back to, as you say, basically the last time we did this. And it's a very, very fertile ground. The Naval War College, um, you know, I, I just finished a, 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 a great World War II case study and war game uh, in, in my course at Naval War College. So uh, I did not do as much as that as I should have. Uh, it's certainly a great way to do it. And and I do, I'm very encouraged by how much, not, not only in training, but we're taking some real, you know, there, there's some real uh, cultural, organizational and kind of uh, thought framing lessons I think are going into our, our planning and in, in writing the tactics and things as, as we as a group as an institution conceptualize how this is going to go we're mining that a lot and I think very effectively and, and of course there's things are going to be very different that, that are harder to there are concrete historical examples to point to things as you mentioned like space and, and some of the IW uh, you know elements now that existed that didn't at that time um, but no, I, I wish I spent more time in command doing this. Um, and uh, and I hope my, I think a lot of my uh, the folks are in command now that were my previously my students, I think they're out there doing it. And uh, that's only a good thing. Yeah, one of the things, uh, I wasn't a service warfare officer and I've been retired now from the Navy for seven years, but in that past less than a decade, the uh, the WTI program for surface warfare officers has certainly you know come online and you're creating a lot of, uh, you know, weapons tactics instructors in specific, you know, ASUW, ASW, uh, air and ballistic missile defense and in mine warfare and also amphibious warfare, right? So did you, when you were in command of Halsey, I'm guessing you probably had some of those WTIs, uh, you know, in your department head uh, cadre? Uh, unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't get any assigned to me uh, as department heads. Uh, however, we did. We did do a lot of training with with WTIs, uh, SMIDIC, and, and some of the other uh, waterfront training agencies have WTIs and bring them. And, and it, it's only goodness. Um, and I think culturally in the community, uh, they have uh, they themselves have been big force multipliers. They, they're fantastic trainers to a man and a woman. I've been impressed by every every WTI I've met and every W you know, session I've uh, training session I've been involved in that they facilitated. Um, and so that, that's, they're individually uh, big contributors. And I think just the cultural idea of saying, okay, this is something that we need people to specialize in again, has been very important for the community. And SMIDIC is, a, is an institution, you know, with a bunch of people that now that's their job and focus on those things. And we had, we had Swedge before, which is a much smaller organization without a flag officer. Um, and they're always there doing it, but the prominence they've been given in our community and, and the, the reign they've been given, the, the free, free range they've been given to really drive more critical, uh, more um, deep thinking and basically a higher bar for tactics has been really important. Um, I mentioned, and I don't tie it to WTIs in the article, but I mentioned the, uh, the surface warfare combat training continuum that uh, SMIDIC is leading. And this, this is a, a family of initiatives um, that I, I would sum up as saying is going to give us a, a much better set of tools for a commanding officer or for, a, you know, say, a group or squadron commander to really measure where we're at in terms of proficiency, because we don't have a lot of great tools for that right now in very many areas. Uh, there's a few great exceptions to that. But uh, this will really give us a tool set where we can really talk about, OK, here's where we're at. Here's where we want to be. Here's what we need to do. And now there's there's because there's so many missions at hand, there's going to always be a little bit of a, of a trading game and a little bit of a, a you know risk. You know, hey, we're going to accept risk over here to focus on this because this is either what we're doing or what we expect to do. There'll always be some of that, I think. Um, but allows us to really understand where we're at and where we need to go. 
And I think, as I, as I alluded to in the article, uh, build a culture around that, that, you know, that proficiency matters. You know, this, this is, you know, it isn't about, and this is, this is, I think, a legitimate gripe that you see in, in, this, the, uh, in the interviews the Senate report did and the interviews that the MPS uh, student did, that people feel like that, that there isn't value placed on that. And I do think that's a major deficit. And I think that the things that SMINIC's doing, the presence of the WTIs in, in the force, uh, and the, some of the tools they're bringing online for us will really enable us to say, hey, you know, Ensign so-and-so is really good in anti-submarine warfare. Let's, you know, let's capitalize on that or let's be like Ensign so-and-so. Um, or, hey, today, you know, this, this team did really great at this, at this task. Uh, I want everybody else to learn from them. I want everybody else to be like them. Or can we compete? Can we compete across ships and more, more, with more fidelity? Um, those are only good things culturally if we, once we can sink our teeth into them. Yeah, just a quick acronym explainer uh, for the non-SWOs out there. SMITIC is the Surface and Mine Warfare Development Command. It's in San Diego. It's, uh, it is led by a, a one star. And uh, yeah, that, it is the place where they're creating uh, the weapons and tactics instructors and building those, uh, the, the modern, you know, new advanced cutting edge tactics for the surface Navy. So uh, and modeled very much on uh, what was done by uh, it used to be Strike U, and now it's Nautic out at Fallon, Nevada, with Naval Aviation, the Strike Fighter Weapons Tactics Instructor Program, the Swifties, and and Top Gun, right? So uh, analogous to that, and a very competitive Absolutely. program. And I've heard, anecdotally at least, that uh, the promotion rates for WTIs is actually uh, well above fleet average. That that, if, that those who are selected and become the WTIs in the surface community are doing very well in terms of uh, promotion to lieutenant commander and commander and, and uh, selection for command. So that's all, all goodness. Um, uh, one last question. So at the end of your article in your bio, you give credit to three other specific officers and also to your students and fellow instructors at SWAS for their ideas and the discussion that helped inform and shape your article. Can you describe some of those conversations for us? And what did other senior surface warfare officers think about the topic and ways to balance, uh, you know, management and warfighting? Sure. And, you know, as I mentioned, one of, one of the great privileges I've had the last two years was to be in a room with, with all these folks who have, you know, some of them quite a bit more experience than I do even. You know, folks have been in the Navy for a long time and had very, you know, a wide variety of different operational backgrounds and things. And uh, every class, I, so I did probably something like um, 25 PCO classes. You know, it's, it's a three-week course, 11 times a year. So I got, got, got through every, 05, every 04 and 05 command in the surface force uh, once and almost and twice in a lot of cases. Um, so that, that array of people just had an array of phenomenally great ideas. And as, as the facilitator, I'd you know, sort of bring up these problems and talk about my experience with them. And every time I'd get, you know, depending on how many people in the class, eight, you know, eight, 10, 12 different perspectives, different ideas. And uh, so a lot of, a lot of that, what you see in this article has just been generally shaped by that. Um, some specific ones I call out, uh, Leandra Kissinger, who's a student of mine. Uh, she's an LCS CEO now. Um, we were in the middle of this discussion and she brought up that, that phrasing of you know, a culture that values proficiency. And, and it's, you know, we, we talked about different aspects of this and angles on this in, in several different classes. And I thought that really captured it well, that, that that's what we want is, is a culture that, that uh, values proficiency. Um, and so I think, you know, for the COs that are out there and the folks that have recently left command, they have all been trying to find different ways to make this work in practice. So there's a million great practical ideas, a million great phrasings and, and uh, ideas for kinds of training and all that going on. 
Uh, one of the things that, that I mentioned in the article that I think we should consider is we should probably have a best practices, you know, the, the lesson learned system. We have a uh, near miss and, and uh, uh, near miss report system for sort of, you know, near mishaps that happen. What we don't have is something like that for training where there are, are or, or tactics. Tracks in a tactical setting and it works really well. It tries to task Y or approach Y in a tactical setting. It the works really well. How do we share that? Or this just this great practice for training. You froze up there for a second yeah, with uh, the, oh. um, something about the tactical. Just repeat that last that last uh, thought you had. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just I, I think you know what I saw in that room is that, that the folks that are in command right now and have been in command and will be in command soon um, are thinking through these things and have a lot of great practical ideas. Uh, Leandra, and I, hopefully that came through. Leandra Kissinger hit, hit the nail on the head with that idea that. Hey, what, what I want inside my lifelines is a culture that values proficiency. And I, I thought that phrasing was great and used it. Um, my my uh, colleague at, at SWAS, Captain Andrew Roy, who's uh, the XO at SWAS, um, he had mentioned the, the point about uh, sailors experiencing combat in the form of damage control. Uh, so another example of, of something that I kind of culled from, from conversations. He was actually my predecessor teaching the PCO course also. Um, and uh, he, he a commander that worked for uh, had talked about, you know, he, he and they, you know, obviously the Royal Navy is very much the same problem set. I've even even gotten some feedback on the article from some of my, my former Royal Navy colleagues when I did an exchange tour there. Uh, that resonates with them for, for many of the same reasons. And uh, my boss there, who was a Falklands War vet, actually, uh, he had this, this concept he talked about a lot that, hey, one of the things that's distinct about the Navy is that we're at war with the sea every day. And that's that connection between some of our peacetime you know, the, the kinds of readiness or the readiness for the kinds of events we have to deal with in peacetime is often very, very similar to combat or the things we have to be ready for in combat. So we can leverage those into our training and into our, our you know, the, the cultural idea that, hey, this is why we're here and this is what we're getting ready to do. And uh, um, so just all of this is to say that, that uh, you know, this is the distillation of some really great conversations over the last couple of years, uh, both in the classroom and with some of my colleagues. I think a lot of folks, to answer your question, a lot of senior officers in the community are thinking at you know, granular level, how can we do these things better out to you know, organizational changes. Um, the service community is really taking this on as, a, as an imperative uh, the last several years. And, and I think we're making some great progress and some great things coming down the line. Okay. Um, you, you froze up again there a little bit, but I mm -hmm. think... Yeah, uh, Heather's just saying she can edit out a couple of those breaks in the post production. I think you're. I think Thanks, enough Heather. of your what what you said is uh, is coming through. So, um, all right. Well, we are about out of time, uh, but this has been a great discussion, and it brings up some really salient points that have been ongoing. Uh, certainly, you know, since 2017, uh, you know, since uh, Fitzgerald and McCain collisions and then the aftermath of that and how the surface community, you know, sort of reoriented itself, refocused itself. Um, I think this this article is uh, it's it's salient. It's also really very timely and it's uh, just brings up some, you know, some terrific points and debunks some of the things, you know, that the ideas that uh, tend to fly around that are easy ideas, but then when you dig into them, you're like, that's not going to fly, right? That, that often happens. So uh, <laughs> my guest has been Devere, Commander Devere Crooks, U.S. Navy. His article is titled, uh, Management Makes Warfighting Possible. It's in the September issue of Proceedings. It starts on pages 38 and 39. Uh, Devere, thanks for the insights and for being on the show today. And congrats on uh, another uh, insightful article. Thanks very much, Bill. I appreciate it. All right. 
So that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast brought to you by Textron Systems Aerosan Uncrewed Aircraft System, designed for expeditionary land and sea-based operations, building on the system's 600,000 plus flight hours in the field. The hybrid quad variant offers vertical takeoff and landing capability and brings enhanced mission flexibility while maintaining a small footprint. Learn more at textronsystems.com. And until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.